Welcome to the Ardent Archives, a ministry of North Clay Baptist Church. Here we explore the writings of church history in order to edify and equip the saints in their ongoing discipleship. In this series, we are reading and discussing Assurance by Charles Spurgeon. This small booklet is the sum of three sermons delivered by the Prince of Preachers on the subject of assurance. Spurgeon directed these sermons to Christians who question their faith and live with doubt concerning their salvation pointing to Christ and Christ alone as the author and finisher of our faith and the guarantee of our salvation. So sit back and prepare to have your heart and mind engaged as we dive into Assurance by Charles Spurgeon. Hello again and welcome back to the Ardent Archives. We are busy discussing the book Assurance by Charles Spurgeon. I am one of your hosts, Pastor Drew Bieber. I'm here with my co-host, Pastor Josh McDaniel. And this book is a collection of three sermons given by Spurgeon um, on this issue of assurance. And we are discussing in this discussion the last sermon, which is simply titled Helps to Full Assurance. And so, Josh, I don't know about you, but I have thoroughly enjoyed going through these Spurgeon sermons. Oh yeah! Anytime you have a chance to read a sermon from a guy who's widely known as the Prince of Preachers, it is it is always a blessing. It's always a lot of fun. Uh, I will say this: when you have to read them out loud, and when you have to try to preach like you think he would have preached, that is a daunting task. Oh, so absolutely! A lot of fun, but also whew, there is a sense of um, of uh, man. It doesn't matter how prepared you are, you're yeah. not prepared. And you can, I mean, even in just these three three sermons, you can really see the genius of who Spurgeon was and really the uh, talent and skill he had in his preaching. You know, personally, I'm a very um, uh, analytical type of person. I'm a very logical type of thinker. I want things laid out uh, systematically. And so when I preach, I preach in that same way. Yeah. And... You know, one of the issues I have is that um, simply systematically relaying facts does not equal preaching. Right. And sometimes my preaching can come off as really dry or boring or non engaging because, you know, sim- simply what I'm doing is uh, sort of the, um, the main focus for me is the organization of the facts. Yeah. And when you see Spurgeon preach and you see his command of the text, you see you see his organization of his sermon, but then you also see just the gusto that he has in the way he delivers it. Yeah. And the uh the way he constructs words to communicate more clearly. Uh it, I mean it's nothing short of uh inspirational as well as motivating to say, mm-hmm. you know what, I can, you know, I need to work to uh, preach as as fervently as uh, uh, as colorfully as as he does. You know, I need to be able to paint these same images that he does. I can't I can't simply just recount facts for people. I can't simply just give people here's what the text says and here's what it means. Like preaching involves so much more than that. And I love I just love the way that Spurgeon really put that into practice. Yeah, and and all of us when we compare our sermons or when we compare our time behind the pulpit to Spurgeon are going to feel wanting, you know. Oh, absolutely. Um, but he always, he makes the the focal point always about the gospel. Yes. It comes from the text. And as we saw, particularly in the last sermon, there is a passionate plea and 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 a an urging to consider the truths that have been laid before you. Yes. You know, in an application of the text. Um, and so this sermon was 
preached on July 20th, okay. 1884. Okay. And so if you remember, we had the uh, the first sermon in the book, The True Position of Assurance, was delivered in 1864. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second sermon, Full Assurance, was delivered in 1861. Yeah. And their sermon was delivered in 1884. And so we see about a 20-year span yeah. that, that these sermons took place in. Yeah. And so, um, again, this just kind of just shows my appreciation for the fact that somebody did the work to find these uh, find these sermons to say, hey, these sermons are excellent and they need to be put together because they all are speaking to the same issue. And somebody put them together and organized them in this short little booklet. And yeah. so, um, again, I do think it was the guys at Monergism. Make sure to check them out. You get free books. I, I I don't know what else you need to hear. I don't know who doesn't need more books. Yes. I think it was Erasmus who said, if you if you get any money, you know, go buy books. And if you have any left over, go buy food and clothes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, hey, you don't even have to do that. You can get these books. That's right. They're free. free. Yeah. Absolutely. And and we got everything from Spurgeon to Calvin to uh, A.W. Pink to, um, you know, Lorraine Botner. I mean, just everybody. Uh, yeah. Like I said, over 700 books of uh, free books uh, from uh, solid, uh, you know, biblical teachers. And so let's let's go ahead and get into this one. Obviously, we can tell from the title helps to full assurance that one of the things that Spurgeon is going to be hitting on is how we can come to full assurance. Yeah. In the first sermon, he already laid out what full assurance was, mm-hmm. the true position of full assurance. And then in the second sermon, he dealt with um whether or not full assurance is actually something that can be attained by the Christian. Yeah. And obviously the conclusion he came to is that, yes, it is absolutely mm-hmm. something that can be attained by the Christian and something that is worthwhile for the Christian to pursue. Yeah. And then in this one, he is spelling out, okay, how can you pursue full assurance? How can you uh, attain full assurance? What are the helps that you have to gaining full assurance? Yeah. And so this uh, sermon is based on the text of 1 John five thirteen. So Josh, why don't you go ahead and read it for us, not only in the uh, modern English Legacy Standard Bible, but also in Heaven's Language, the King James. <laughs> we'll start off with the uh, King James. Uh, 1 John five thirteen says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that we may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And from the LSB, it says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And he jumps into this, and so he he just says, listen, this is, he says it is is a simple thing that John's going to go for. He it is a very obvious thing that John is going to go for. He is going to help you understand that you have eternal life. He's going to say, "I've written these things to you with this purpose. You believe on the name of the Son of God, and you can know that you have eternal life." It's very simple. He lays it out there. There is no, there's no secret message to it. You don't have to put together a puzzle piece. He says, man, this is as, as on the nose as it can be. Right. It's very plain language. Mm-hmm. And he breaks this sermon up again into four sections. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are the four sections that he breaks this up into. He says, the first thing we need to do is consider to whom this text is written. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the first section. The second section, we need to consider to what end 
this was written. And then the third section, we must consider how what was written conduces us to that blessed confidence, how what was written actually uh, drives us toward full assurance. Right. And then in the very last section, uh, in the introduction to the sermon, he says, I shall call your attention to an added matter, which is never forgotten by John. And so he doesn't exactly tell you what he's going to get into. And so I won't tell you yet. We'll just get into it when we get into it. There we go. And so uh, as far as this first section is concerned, right, we read the text um, and he says we need to understand who this text was written to. Because the text says, right, I have written to you. Yeah. Well, to whom? Yeah. Right. To whom has this been written? And for this, he has to, he goes to the entire length of the epistle. Uh, so he doesn't just appeal to this one verse. He's not saying who is, what is this one verse written to? Although he does say this verse, he does pull that out, but he says, we can understand who this is written to when we look at the whole of the epistle. And he says, this epistle and this particular text in it were written for all those who who believe on the name of the Son of God. Yes. In part of the epistle, he says, I write to you, little children. And then he says, in another part, I write unto you, young men. And further on, he says, I have written unto you, fathers. But now he writes to babes, to young men, and to fathers under one comprehensive description of those who have believed on the name of the Son of God. So who is this written to? To whom is it written? To all those who have believed on the name of the Son of God. Whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're in the prime of life, he's written it to you yeah. if you've believed on the name of the Son of God. And that's one of the things we have to, I think is a very important whenever we approach any biblical text, is we have to ask, who is this speaking to? And who is this being written to? Mm-hmm. Um And the reason being, and this is one of the things Spurgeon uh, spells out in this section, he says, it is important to observe the direction of the letter, for I may be reading a communication meant for somebody else. And if it should contain good tidings, I may be deceiving myself by appropriating the news. And so we have to recognize, yes, the scriptures are written, and all of scripture, from beginning to end, every single word of the text is, is, is for Christians, and it's edifying to the Christians. But we have to understand who it's being written to yeah. and what's being communicated. Well, and he because otherwise it. we get into a world of hurt when um, uh, God commands Joshua to go and destroy a nation. We mm-hmm. think, well, that means that I, Drew Bieber, in 2021, need to lead an army and go destroy a nation. Right? Well, no, that text was written for somebody else. And so if that text is written to somebody else and yet it's still edifying for me, as a believer, I need to make sure that I'm not taking the command to Joshua and using it as a command myself. Yeah, right? the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't necessarily written to us. Yes. You know, and so that's the distinction. We still look at the Bible and recognize these messages are for us today, even in our time that is completely removed from whatever circumstances they were going through when it was written. You know, it's written for us today, but it wasn't written to us. Yes. And so here he pulls it out that this is written to all those who have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he even says to unbelievers, this text is not written. Yeah. Uh, It is for all who trust in Jesus, but it is for none beside. And so he's, he's saying this thing that I'm about to say, because I'm about to be talking to you helps to full assurance. If you're an unbeliever, 
none of these things apply to you. Right. You can says, have no help to full assurance. And he says that this is uh, this is not addressed to unbelievers simply because it would be preposterous to wish men to be assured of that which is not true. So if right. you have not believed on Jesus Christ, you are not saved. You cannot be assured of a salvation you don't have. It's not true that you've been saved. So it is preposterous for me to sort of uh, uh, exhort you to assurance of something that you don't possess. Right. And he would not leave the unbeliever out in that if you are not a believer, if this is not you, then please, by all means, make today the day where you're inquiring upon how might I be saved? How may I have this full assurance? I'm not going to help you with your full assurance because you don't have it. So ask the question, how may I have this full assurance? Which is how he ended the last sermon by a, a passionate uh, plea as the preacher imploring them to come to know Christ. And so he would here as well say, if you are an unbeliever, this is not for you, but I can sp- still speak to your condition in that you need to have full assurance. Yeah. And you need to come to a place where this sermon would be for you. Yeah. Um, And he says, faith is a necessary preliminary to assurance. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You must have the blade of faith before you can have the ripe corn of assurance. Right. And so he's, again, he's not basically, you know what, unbelievers, this isn't for you. So y'all just go ahead and shut your ears. Yeah, he doesn't tell them to take a nap. Yeah, no, no. He tells them that you cannot have assurance if you don't have faith first. You first need to have faith. Mm-hmm. And then once you have faith, you can have assurance. But he already laid out in the last sermon that assurance comes from Christ in the same way that faith comes from Christ. And so even though he's speaking of assurance and he's speaking of assurance to believers, that message is still uh, relevant to the unbeliever because the unbeliever needs Christ in the same way that the believer needs Christ. Right. I mean, it, I guess technically you could say in a different way. One needs to be saved. One needs to be assured of their salvation. Yeah. But the point is, is that they both need Christ. Right. And so again, Spurgeon just, just so excellently, excellently raising up Christ mm-hmm. and saying, look to Christ and in raising up Christ, Christ will draw him in unto himself. Right. He's not, he's not trying to do anything right. other than that. Right. And so he, you know, he moves on. He says, okay, so, so this is going to be for the believers. So what is it that, what is it that is going to be written to believers that excludes unbelievers or not excludes unbelievers, but is not directly for them. So it, the second part of his thing is to what end John has written this. Why yeah. has he written this? And he says, listen, it's he puts it very simply here. Again, John doesn't hide anything. And Spurgeon said that in the beginning. He says, he says, when he says that ye may know that ye have eternal life, I think his first meaning is that you may know that everybody who believes in Jesus Christ has eternal life. Okay, so to the people it was written to, this was written to all those who have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is being written to them? that you can know that you have eternal life. So he wants to communicate. What does John want to communicate? That you, you believer, whether you're old, whether you're young, whether you're in the prime of life, believer, you can know. You may know that you have eternal life. Right. And and that is the end. That is the purpose of John Mm -hmm. writing. So that believers can be assured of their faith. Again, this is this is why it's so important to understand the English language. And this is one of the uh, downfalls of my generation and certainly the generation after me. The instant message, text message, 
generation, uh, we have no understanding of English. Um, mm, right. James White always says that if you want to learn Greek, the first thing you have to do is you have to learn English before you can learn Greek. Otherwise, you're going to be learning about imperatives and uh, prepositions yeah. and, you know, all these different, you know, grammatical terms. And you don't know what those mean in your own language. How can you understand them in a different language? And so uh, we've we've seen the subject of the of the passage. Right. The subject is yeah. to those who believe. And then what to what end is he communicating? What is he trying to say to those mm-hmm. who believe, right? Uh, what is he trying to produce in those who believe? What What is the purpose of his writing to those who believe? The purpose is so that you may know mm-hmm. that you have eternal life. Right. And, you know, he spells that out in uh, this section just r- really well that John is writing for the purpose of you having full assurance, which, again, is an answer to the objectors who say, well, full assurance isn't possible right well if first full assurance was not possible then why would john be writing to me for the purpose of my having full assurance so that right. i know that i'm saved right he says he says that you know you can know that you have full assurance that you can know that you have been saved and he he makes the statement he said he, he thinks he says i think that john in this passage meant and we will consider him as meaning that he would have us know that we personally have eternal life by having us know that we do personally believe in Jesus. He wants us to know that we believe in Jesus. He wants us to know that Christ is the person we've believed in. It is one thing to know that every believer has eternal life, but it is quite another thing to know that I am a believer. So as to have eternal life myself, he says, I have read of one who fell into the water. I love this example, by the way. And as he was sinking, he saw a rainbow in the sky above him. Ah, thought he, God has made a covenant not to destroy the earth with a flood, and yet it is no comfort to me, for I fear I shall be drowned. Yes. The largest provisions of grace avail us nothing unless we have a personal interest in them. And so he wants you first, he wants you first to know, listen, yes, you can have full assurance you can absolutely, that is a, that is a rainbow. That is a perfect thing. You can have full assurance, but I want you first to know that you believe. Yeah. I want you first to know that, that you've put your faith and trust. in. Well, him. and this is a good demonstration of what I was talking about uh, a little earlier when I said that, you know, Spurgeon, uh, he's not just recounting accurate biblical facts, right? but he's preaching, right? It is an absolute concrete objective reality that those who believe in Jesus Christ have eternal life. Right. That fact put aside, how do I know that I believe and therefore have eternal life? Simply because believers have eternal life, that doesn't tell me if I'm a believer. Right. And so that's what he's going for is that, no, no, no. It's not just the fact that believers have eternal life. I want John, I want you to know. John wants you to know that you personally have eternal life because you personally are a believer. Right. And again, like he says, he's he's trying to drive at uh, what he says is that personal interest in Christ. This isn't just about whether or not you know the facts. The fact is, every believer has eternal life. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. And believers and unbelievers alike can come to understand and know that fact with certainty. But do you know that you are a believer? That's what John is getting at. He's writing these things to you so that you will know that you are a believer. So that you will know that you won't drown in a flood because God has promised not to flood the earth. Right. You know? Right. And and he does say, he says, listen, uh, again, going back, you know, 
you will wrestle with this sometimes. Sometimes you will wrestle with with doubts and you'll wrestle with struggles and you'll wrestle. He said he, he never wants you to feel condemned because of those doubts because he did mention in the last sermon that, you know, David and, and, yeah. and Abraham, they've wrestled with doubts and everything like that. But he does want you to know that you can have full assurance, you can, but you have to be a believer for those things. Yeah. That, and you can know you're a believer. You know, you can know you're a believer, and you can know you have full assurance because the Holy Spirit has been at work with you. He brings up Bunyan. Yes. Uh, and Bunyan was maybe his favorite author. Uh, it was He certainly wrote his favorite book, except for Scripture itself, which was Pilgrim's Progress, which, by the way, there's a, there's a really good really good audio book of that yeah. there's a really good recording yeah. of that uh, you know maybe you can look that up at uh, shameless plug shameless plug not so shameless but he says bunyan speaks of being much tumbled up and down in his thoughts and that nearly hits my mental condition spurgeon says that hits my mental condition yeah and spurgeon was known for having struggled with depression yeah it is very possible for a man to be a very strong believer and yet to question whether he has a spark of faith. I have heard ministers ridicule this state of inward questioning, and indeed it is ridiculous to all but those who are in it. If you once become a sufferer under this wretched complaint, the absurdity of your disease will not lessen its painfulness. Yeah. And so he says, listen, it's okay if you wrestle with doubts. You don't want to stay in that spot, but everyone or, or a lot of people have wrestled with these doubts. But he wants you to be assured if you have received the gospel message, if you have believed this gospel message, then these these things are written to you. These verses in John are written to you, and they are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. Right, right. Not so that you can guess at it, not so that you can uh, one day, we'll, you know, we'll have, you know, maybe the possibility of gaining the knowledge that I have eternal life. No, he wants you to know now in this present time you have eternal life. Yeah. And and here's a good uh, object lesson for sort of pastoral application. You know, when he talks about this, um, you know, what he calls this inward questioning. And, and he says, indeed, this sort of inward questioning, being a strong believer and yet questioning your faith, it is ridiculous. Unless you're the one living in it. Yeah, yeah. He says, uh, 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 our mental distresses need not be logical. They can be full of anguish and yet be most unreasonable. And, you know, for me personally, that's one thing that I always need to keep in mind. Because, like I said, I'm fairly analytical. You know, I uh, am fairly logical, um, you know, in, in sort of my approach to things. And sometimes when I see people in distress or I see people struggling, I'm like, that makes no sense. That's dumb. You know, mm. I may not say that to people's faces, but, right. um, but in the back of my mind, you know, just because of the way I'm wired, like that's what comes to mind is I'm like, well, that makes no sense. Why would you think that? Why would you believe that? And, you know, you can see, you know, not only the softening of Sorogen's heart due to his own condition, but his heart towards other people that, Hey, just because what you think or what you believe is unreasonable, that doesn't make it any less, you know, difficult. That doesn't right. make it any less uh, full of anguish, as he says, or or um, any less painful. And so, um, you know, as we as we help to counsel people, as we help to pastor people through this issue of assurance, and help them come to the knowledge and the understanding and the and and the the full belief and faith in, in the fact that they are saved. Um, 
we need to remember that fact. Yeah. Right? I, I need to remember that fact that often, like he says, their condition might be ridiculous, mm-hmm. but it's not ridiculous to them. Right. And, and, and the task that God has given us as pastors is to walk them through that again, not doing anything in our, on our own strength, but simply continuing to elevate Christ. Right. So that they can see their need for Christ. They can see that Christ is the one who is their assurance and to continue to uh, reorient them, continue to point them to, to the person and work of Jesus. And he, what he does, he, he points it to God. He says, look, he, he says, he says, I know that the reason why you'll have doubts and the reason why you'll have struggles is because you are not perfected yet. You, you, there's, you're not right now. You still wrestle with sin. You still, you know, struggle with faith and all those things. He says towards the end of this point, he, in the sermon, he says, he says, but John, even though he's dead, speaks out of this book. Talking about First John. Mm-hmm. He calls upon you to know that the Son of God has come and that he has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and that we are in him that is true even in his son, Jesus Christ. And he bids us as believers, if you have heard the gospel, like he said in the first sermon, if you have not only heard it and received it, but believed in it, if you've trusted in Christ and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, then he bids us as believers firmly repose our souls upon the promise of our faithful God. Understand your salvation and your assurance is not wrapped up in you or anything you've done, but it's wrapped up in the faithful God who has promised if you receive and if you believe, if you if you recognize those things in your life, then you've been sealed. Yeah. And he makes it right before he goes into the third point. He says, but listen, I remind certain of you that since you've not believed, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. Yeah. I'm about to move into assurance. You've got no part in it if you haven't yeah. believed. And he speaks to uh, two believers and he says, he says, the church of Rome teaches that no man can be assured that he has eternal life except some few to whom supernatural revelations may be given. That sort of doctrine lingers in the air of Protestantism. Mm-hmm. Many people think the same, though they do not say so. And I, I love the way he does this. Impossible to know that you are quickened it ought to be impossible to have any doubt about it. Right. Rationally, a living man should know that he is alive. Right. Right. Scripture says that in sin, we are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, but it's God who has made us alive. Right. right? We are dead uh, uh, corpses with a heart of stone, and God takes that heart of stone and gives us heart of flesh. He's saying it should be impossible for you to have any doubt about the fact yeah. that you are alive in Christ. No man, and here's what he goes on to say, no man should give sleep to his eyes or slumber to his eyelids while he has doubt about his eternal state. It is possible. And if it is possible, then it is very desirable. Mm-hmm. For when a man knows that he has eternal life, what a comfort it is to him. And that just hits on the point that, yes, assurance is possible. And if it's possible, then that's something that we should be striving yes. for. Yes. That's something that we should be pursuing. That's something that we should be earnestly pleading with God to give us. Yeah. Because it rests not in us or our accomplishments. It rests in a faithful God. Yeah. Who can and does do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Yeah. And in that third section, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the third section, what has John said in the epistle which conduces to our full assurance? Yeah. He says, how does this help us know that we are believers? And consequently, to know that we have eternal life. 
I cannot attempt a full resume of this most blessed epistle, but I shall select a few items from very many. And so he's kind of going into like what what has he given us to know that we are are, are, like what has he given us that basically drives us to have full assurance? And he says basically produces this full assurance in us. It's not all just in this verse. Yeah, it's not all in this verse. And and he he does he has a again he's he's such a a word smith in that he says that. The wish of the apostle, the wish of John, that all believers might know that they have eternal life is the silken thread upon which his pearls are strung. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about through the entire yeah. epistle. He goes through, he's, he quotes John six forty seven. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Yes. Will you doubt the Lord's verily, verily, he asks. You know, I mean, he's, he's, you know, he says, are you going to doubt what the Lord said there? The Lord said, verily, verily. Are you going to doubt that? Um, and so he, he, he says that this has been the, the, the desire of John all throughout his, uh, all throughout uh, his epistles and all throughout everything he wrote. And it's the same here. He says, you're going to find first that John mentions as an evidence, truthful dealing with God in faith and confession of sin. Yes. That naturally men walk in darkness or falsehood towards God. But when we have believed in Jesus, we come to walk in the light of truth. He says, read in the first chapter of the epistle from verse six to nine. So this is where John's just come from. He's written in this epistle. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so he says, and he says, listen, John is not just now starting to talk about that you can know you have eternal life. He's been saying this all along. He's been saying all along that you can know you've been cleansed. You can know that the truth is in you. Because if you confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, this is a work of God. This is a work of Christ. And because of what he has done, you can know that you have eternal life. Right, right. And, uh, you know, and I believe he made this point in, in previous sermons is that his assurance is rooted in the reality that Christ came to save sinners. Yeah. And yeah. so he recognizes, I'm a sinner. Christ came to save sinners. I believe in Jesus, therefore I'm saved, right? It's almost as if he looks at his his sinful condition and even the remaining uh, sort of stains of sin uh, as evidence of the fact that, well, I, this is exactly what Christ came for. Yeah. It was for its sin. And... Uh, this is, you know, this is what he's sort of fleshing out in this in this section. He says, um, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The believer does not attempt to deal with God as if he had no sin, for that were to make Christ useless. Right. Seeing there would be uh, no need for his blood to cleanse. And that's one of the problems with looking to our own works. If we are looking to our own works, looking to our own good works, 
and we say, well, I've been good enough, therefore I must be saved. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, what we're doing is we're basically saying, well, we're not recognizing our sinfulness. We're not recognizing the fact that, well, we're saved from sin. Right. Like Christ came to save us from our sin. And if we deny our own sinfulness, well, then we're denying the fact that we need Christ's salvation. Yeah. And he says that John also gives us obedience as a test. Yes. You know, that if uh, he says, look to the second chapter, the second chapter of the epistle, and begin to read at the third verse. And hereby, we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Yes. He that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. And it almost seems like a contradiction, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, obedience is a, is a way you can measure your assurance. Do you obey God's commandments? Well, then you can, that's evidence of, of your, uh, of your salvation. Right. But he also says that confession of sin, confession of the fact that you don't obey. Right. Is also evidence of your assurance. And it almost seems like a contradiction, but it's not. It's a recognition that we are sinners. Christ came to save sinners. So I confess my sin. Why? Because he's faithful and just to forgive sin. But then I also obey his commandments, not because I don't have sin, but because he's given me a new heart. Right. And he's causing me to walk in his statutes. And now I can obey him. And because I can't obey him, I do obey him. And we can, that is also an evidence of the fact that we've been saved. Right. He says that um, he makes references, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And so if we are Christ's sheep, if he is our shepherd and he calls to us to follow him and to obey him because we know his voice we will follow him we will come after him he also says that there's another evidence and it's it's loving in the heart he says uh the evidence of love in the heart in the second chapter read at the ninth verse he that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now he that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. And he says, then go to the 14th verse of the third chapter. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Mm-hmm. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. This will greatly help you to decide your case. That's Spurgeon. Uh, he says, do you hate anybody? Are you seeking revenge? Are you unforgiving? Then you are not dwelling in the light. You are of Cain and not of Christ. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's another good one. I, you know, sometimes when, you know, I think about just some of the craziness that goes on, you know, in our culture, um, Mm -hmm. you see all manner of idiocy and stupidity on the internet. Um, Sometimes I I see that and I go, I would not mind living in a cabin in the woods, completely isolated from the rest of society because society is ridiculous. Right. And, and so, you know, if apart from Christ, I think that would be my sort of my bent is that I I would be a hermit. Well, maybe not a hermit. Maybe that's too strong a word, but I would want to have nothing to do with people Mm -hmm. because quite frankly, people are dumb. You know, I'm people. So I'm also dumb. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, And yet, one of the things that God has worked in me is that I love to be around 
people mm-hmm. and not just people in general. Uh, I love to be around Christians and not just Christians yeah, in God's general. people. Yeah. And not just Christians in general. I love to be around my church fellowship. Yeah. There is something about our local church fellowship and the relationships that we have, the foundation of those relationships that yeah. is just so uh, edifying. It's so fulfilling. And so sometimes, you know, sometimes I still have that idea, man, I would just love to go and buy some land and live on that land and work the land and never have to deal with people again. And then I think about my church family and I'm like, oh, but I just, I love being around my church family. Yeah. And that sort of love is not something in myself, right? That's not something I have in myself. I can, I can tell you that with, with full confidence that that's not something in myself, but that's something that the spirit works in us. When, when Christ has done this work in us, he gives us a love for his people, the people that he's redeemed, Mm -hmm. the body that he's redeemed. And so Again, that's another evidence. Do you love to be around his people? Do you love to have fellowship with his people? Do you love to have one mind with his people, that mind being the mind of Christ? Mm -hmm. That's evidence that you're saved. Do you not like those things? That may be evidence that you have some work to do, or that may be evidence of the fact that you're lacking salvation. That you're one of the ones that John's not talking to. Yeah. You know? Uh, he also says that that next comes the separation from the world. He says in, in uh, the second chapter at the 15th verse, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he says this is backed up by the first verse of the third chapter. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. And so all over the scripture, we see that you cannot love God and things of the world. You cannot love. Uh, you cannot love God and fleshly desires. That those are polar opposites. And it's not that there aren't good things in the world. I have a family that's in this world. I love them. You know, it's not that there are not good things in this world. But to love God, you cannot have your love of the world at the right, same right. in the same way. And so you will. And one of the ways that that our pastor has has said it to the kids is is that your want tos change. That all of a sudden you don't want the things of the world. You don't yes. love them. Now at one point you did. You loved them. You enjoyed them. They were uh, your fulfillment, your gratification. But when you love God, your wants begin to change. Yes. And so he says that you can. Look there at do you love God? And not only do you love God, but do you hate the world? Yeah. And so you you see that he's calling us to attention those sorts of things. And 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 that you cannot have both. It's not a both and. Right. This is an right. either or thing. And why would you want to love the world over God? He says, uh, and the world passeth away. And the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever, little children. It is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. If you love the world and if you follow after the world, and if you go after the world, 
until the end, then you have loved the wrong thing. Right. And that's and that's one of the other evidences he points out is that the continuing in the faith mm-hmm. is another mm-hmm. evidence that we can we can look at. Um, you know, we kind of hit on this hyper emotionalism that's rampant in the church today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things you see is you see a lot of hype at the mountaintop. And then as soon as that wears off, people leave the faith. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't you know, we have a movement going on right now in, you know, the 20th century of, of this ex-evangelical movement. Have you heard of this? Yes, the ex-evangelical. This, this movement of prominent evangelical figures, usually celebrity type figures, uh, you know, so-called Christians who were musicians, actors, you know, preachers, whatever, who kind of had a big spotlight, all leaving the faith. They're all leaving the faith for mm. whatever reason. All of their reasons ultimately are because they love themselves more than they love the things of God. Yeah. But... Um, but, but, but what we see is we see this exodus from the faith. And one of the things that John lays out is that if you continue in the faith, that's evidence mm-hmm. of your salvation. Mm-hmm. Now, does that just mean that because you grit your teeth and you hang in there a little bit longer than the last guy, that that means you're better than he is? Well, no. But if you have been truly saved, God's going to carry you through yeah. to the end. And this is another one of those, um, you know, Calvinist doctrines. Of of the perseverance of the saints, <laughs> dun dun dun, <laughs> or or as as Pastor Tim likes to put it, the preservation of the saints. Mm-hmm. The saints are preserved because they have been saved. They have mm-hmm. been truly saved, and so one of the things we can look at, and is that do you continue in the faith? Yeah. Have you continued to pursue the things of of God? Have you continued to pursue Christ? Well, if you are continuing to pursue Christ, then take comfort. Because only those who are saved continue to pursue Christ. Right. He also says another evidence is that of purification. He says in the third chapter and the third verse, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So do you every day endeavor to keep clear of sin? And when you have sinned, Do you at night go with bitter repentance to God and beg to be delivered from it? And this is something that is absent from so many pulpits in in our country today. The idea that you are purifying yourself, that you are repenting of sin, daily repenting of sin, daily seeking to be rid of those things and to, to be holy as God is holy. And we should be seeking that we should be seeking a life that is more like Christ's, less like the world's. Yeah. And in those things, in that, and that's not a work that we, like you said, we don't grit our teeth and and get ourselves to that place. We recognize that it's only accomplished through Christ. Yes. We are saved in Christ. We are kept in Christ, and we are preserved in Christ, and we live in Christ, and we do things. Everything in Christ, and we seek purity in Christ right. and repentance because of him. And I'm sure you could say that when you look at your life now compared to your life prior to Christ or just uh, just after your conversion, that you are much more sanctified now than you were then. Yeah, and that's right. a terrifying thing because I know where I am now, and right. it's not nearly where I want to be, you know? But but John's pointing to that as an evidence. He's saying that if you are being sanctified, 
if you are being purified, if you are being made pure, if you're seeking purity and your uh, purity is having a, a a hold in your life, like that's evidence that God is working in you. Yeah, yeah. Because, because if God were not sanctifying you, you would either be in the same state or you'd be worse off. Right. 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 But because God is working in you, you're being sanctified. You're being purified. You're being washed. You're being cleansed. You're you're uh, putting. You're continuing to put off the old man and putting right. on the righteousness of of Christ. Right. And one of the last assurances that he deals with, he says, this is one of the best evidences of true faith, and one of the best helps to full assurance, and that is a holy familiarity with God. Yes. And he says, read in the fourth chapter. The 16th verse, and we have known and believed the love that God hath given to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Mm-hmm. Oh, beloved brother. If you, would, if you have come to speak with God as a man speaketh with a man, if you dwell in him, if every day you say more to God than you do to men, and if you find more joy in fellowship with God than you do in all of the world beside, then you are one of his. Yeah. And again, we have to recognize, right? He's talking about fellowship with God. He's talking about communicating with God. How do we do those things? We do those things through the word of God. Right. And yes, you can read the word of God and not be saved. But if you have a desire for God and you seek his scriptures and you study his scriptures because you want to know this God that's communicating in his word, Mm -hmm. like that's an evidence of full assurance. Do you have a familiarity with God? And not just familiarity in terms of facts, right? I think it was Matt Chandler who always gave the... um, um, you know, the analogy of, you know, knowing somebody versus knowing about them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. He he tells a story of he bumped into some football player. I can't remember which one it was. Yeah. And he, you know, he talks about the fact that now he knows him and he's just like, but I don't actually know him. Right. I bumped right. into him one time and I know some facts about his life, but that doesn't right. actually equate to knowing him. And so it's not just do you know facts about God, but do you know God? Do you pursue fellowship with him, do you prize fellowship with God over fellowship with men? Do you know because of an affection you yes. have for him? You know, you you know, if you have an affection for someone, you get to know them not because it's some sort of painful drudge, but because it is a delight to your heart. Um, you know, uh, you know, we love our spouses; we have an affection for them. Therefore, we get to know them. We get to enjoy getting to know them. And we get to benefit from that because of our love, because of our affection for them. In the same way, if you love God, you will get to know him. You will get to understand him more. Not because it's a painful drudge, but because out of your passion, out of your affection, you naturally want to have more of him. And not only do you want to have more of him, you want to have less of everything else. Right, right. And so it's when we see... A wanting and a desiring to know God above all else, it is a beautiful and wonderful evidence. Yeah, absolutely. And that leads us to maybe the last point of his sermon, the appendix to John's design. Right. And so we said he did break it up into four sections, mm-hmm. and he did not say what that fourth section was, so we didn't say it until now. Right. 
And so here's what he says. He says, the apostle John puts it that you or that you may believe on the name of the son of God. I think he means this. You are never to get into such a state that you say, I have eternal life. And therefore, I need not trust simply in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Years ago, I was born again. And so now I can live without the daily exercise of faith. No, says the apostle. I am writing this to believers and I tell them that while they may have full assurance, it cannot be a substitute for habitual faith in the Lord Jesus. And so I think this is an excellent way to conclude his sermon. And he is uh, hitting at the fact that we, are, that first of all, assurance is not to replace faith. Right. Faith is an ongoing process. Faith is a daily exercise, as as Spurgeon puts it. And we can't think, hey, I know I've been saved, therefore I don't need to exercise faith. Mm-hmm. And, and he's saying, no, 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 no. There's faith and there's assurance. But you can't have assurance without faith. And you can't simply substitute assurance for your faith. You cannot uh, cease to exercise faith simply because now that you've attained assurance. Right. And he says this a little bit later. He says that the moment I possess, or at this moment, right? He's speaking now. At this moment, I possess a comfortable and clear assurance that I have eternal life. But the ground of my confidence today is exactly what it was when I first came to Christ. Right. That being Christ himself. I have no confidence in my confidence I place no reliance upon my own assurance. My assurance lies in the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and that whosoever believeth in him hath eternal life. I do believe in him and therefore I know I have eternal life. And I love the way that he does this. And this reminds me of a story that you told when we were discussing the um, the Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah. He told a story about going to a funeral. Uh, and at this funeral, the pastor was speaking about this man and one of the things he uh he the pa- the um the pastor did not know about this man's faith he didn't know about his salvation when he questioned him about it the man just gave him a thumbs up and said i'm good mm-hmm. and um and what spurgeon is trying to lay out is that sort of attitude to faith hey i'm good and this is something we see a lot yeah. especially in in the south and especially in baptist circles is hey i walked an aisle hey yeah. i prayed a prayer hey i remember I remember raising my hand at that. Yeah, me and Jesus, we've got things worked out. Yeah, we've got it worked out. And he's saying that we should never want to be in that state. Right. Where we say, I have eternal life, therefore I don't need to trust in Christ. Or I was born again years ago, so I can live without the daily exercise. Yeah, Spurgeon says, keep to your first faith. However far you go in other directions, stand fast to your undivided faith in Jesus Christ. If you move beyond that, then you've successfully moved beyond where you need to be. Yeah. You know, there is no beyond that. There is no greater than that. Faith in Christ is our top and highest call. It is the call upon which we are saved. It is the call upon which we have assurance. It's the call upon which we live and move and obey in Christ. And I love what he says. He says, if you wish to, uh, if you think it wise to examine these signs and evidences, which I have given you, do so. Yeah. But if you think to get food out of them, you'll find a bare cupboard. Right. Again, what he's trying to illustrate is right. the fact that when you, he's pointing to these evidences, right? These are evidences that are in your life, things that you're doing, right? Do you have faith? Uh, do you love the brethren? Uh, do you continue in the faith? Do you know, do you do all these, all these things? 
And all these things that you are doing can be evidences of your faith. But the point he's making is that if you're looking for salvation in these things, you're going to find an empty cupboard. Yeah. If you think, and here's what he says, if you think you can live without Christ on what you have known in the past, you are greatly mistaken. It is like trying to live on stale manna. Mm-hmm. None of you would have done that in the wilderness. You would soon have turned up your noses at it. And so the point he's making is that if you think that you can find salvation, if you can find food in these evidences, you're going to find an empty cupboard that ultimately the answer is not the evidence. The answer is not the uh, the acts itself. The, the answer is Christ. And if you are living apart from Christ, though you may, you know, quote unquote, continue in the faith, if you're apart from Christ, you're not saved. Right. And he walks down this this little road here here at the end. He says, I am a sinner and Jesus Christ came to save sinners and they that trust in him are saved. Therefore, I trust him. Therefore, I am saved. The word of God declares it. Blessed be his name forever and ever. Amen. Yeah. And that's, I mean, and that's, that's the point. It's all of Christ. Right. Right. We've said this throughout every discussion that Spurgeon's uh, preaching ministry is marked by the fact that all he did was elevate Christ. And even in explaining the evidences of our assurance, he, he always circles back and points back to Christ. Right. That you may be doing these things, but apart from Christ, it means nothing. Right. And that what you need is Christ. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Trust in him and you'll be saved. If you trust in him, if you believe in him, know, have assurance of the fact that you're saved. And so we're going to go ahead and stop our discussion right there. Um, And so this is going to be our last discussion for um, this particular series of the podcast. And when we started this, you know, we had the intention of releasing a, uh, a new book with uh, the readings of the book and discussions of the book every quarter. And we have done that up until this point. And we are actually going to take a break for the summer period, for the summer quarter. That, that's going to be June, uh, July, and August. Um, the next series was set to release on September 1. But the summer season being as busy as it is, uh, we decided to take a break during the summer season. Yeah. Um, our, our summer season at our church is event heavy. Yeah. So um, it's hard to be curriculum heavy. Right, right. And, and it's content hard to, heavy. To, to find the time to, to, to get in here and to record these things with, with so much going on. Um, I can say for me personally, I'm going to be gone three out of four weeks in July just with mission trips and mm-hmm. doing things with the guard and vacations and all this kind of stuff. There's just, there's just too much going on. And so we are going to take a break for the summer season. Obviously, if you have not listened to The Pilgrim's Progress, I can't recommend that enough. Um, or if you haven't listened to On the Incarnation, make sure to go back and to listen to those books, uh, read those books, uh, listen to the discussions. Um, and then we will be back with you in December. So we are going to release the next book in December 1st, on December 1st. And so, Josh, do you want to go ahead and tell us what our next book is going to be? We are going to be going through... Christianity and liberalism is that the, is that the that's the actual title that's of it, the right? actual title yeah Christianity and liberalism and that is by J Gresham Machen the uh, last of the Princeton theologians the great Princeton theologians and his story is a fascinating one and Christianity and liberalism is one of those books that was written in the early 19th century uh, but it could not be more relevant mm-hmm. in, in our day and age today. Yeah. And so we're super excited about that. Again, we've loved discussing this book. Um, quite frankly, um, up until this point, I have felt like our discussions have uh, been helpful to the book. They've been a good, uh, 
sort of uh, sidekick to yeah. the the readings themselves. But with Spurgeon, I kind of feel like my discussing his book kind of gets in the way of him communicating. Yeah, so please go back and listen yeah, to the actual so, sermon. And so if you just kind of went forward and listened to the discussions, please go back and actually listen to the sermons. Yeah. Spurgeon can communicate way more clearly in his sermons than we could trying to break down what he's saying. That's right. He's just much better at it. And so I think it would be much more edifying just to listen to Spurgeon. But hopefully these uh, these discussions have also been helpful for you. And so we will look forward to seeing you again in December where we are discussing Christianity and liberalism. Uh, until then, uh, we look forward to learning with you again soon here on the Ardent Archives. We hope that you enjoyed this discussion of assurance, and we hope that it has been edifying to you and your walk with Christ. Now, this conversation is by no means exhaustive, so we pray that our discussion leads to meaningful conversations with friends and family as you learn what it means to place your hope and assurance of salvation upon Christ and Christ alone. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact us at podcasts at northclay.org. For more information from Northclay Baptist Church or from the Ardent Archives, visit our website at www.northclay.org. We look forward to learning with you again soon here on the Ardent Archives. Baptist Church. Here we explore the writings of church history in order to edify and equip the saints in their ongoing discipleship. In this series, we are reading and discussing Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. Written at the beginning of the 20th century, Machen's classic work remains as relevant today as it was when it was written. Machen sought to expose liberalism's foundation as contrary to that of orthodox biblical Christianity. In his own words, Machen saw the issue in the church of the present day as being not between two varieties of the same religion, but at bottom, between two essentially different types of thought and life. So prepare yourself as we dive into the antithesis of Christianity and liberalism by J. Gresham Machen.